morning. Welcome to worship at Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church. It's a joy to welcome you to this hour of worship. If you happen to be visiting among us, we want to say a special welcome to you. We look forward to coming to know you. I want to ask you to sign the friendship pad you'll find on the outside aisle of your pew. This is one of the ways that we endeavor to nurture the community here at Preston Hollow, so please sign those. Note names of those who are worshiping around you, and then please greet one another by name at the conclusion of our service today. You'll notice a number of announcements on the back of your bulletin, a couple that I'd like to highlight for you. Next Sunday, we will have our congregational meeting for the purpose of receiving a report from the Church Officer Nominating Committee. You'll find their report inside your bulletin. Please note that and be prepared for next week's meeting at 1035 here in the sanctuary. Finally, I want you to know that Lent begins this week, and we will uh, acknowledge that with our annual Ash Wednesday services that will take place here in the sanctuary at 1215 p.m. and at 7 p.m., and we hope that you will include that as we begin to have our uh, Lenten season and as we begin to uh, walk through that season together. Friends, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, and let us worship holy God.
Friends, please join with me in our call to worship. We gather as God's beloved children, however glad we are, however out of sorts we are. We come together as people whom Jesus calls into community. So this becomes a place where all are welcome. We come to give thanks, to pray, and to sing, to be with one another. Let us worship God.
Shame is sneaky. Shame creeps into the passenger seat of the car at the stoplight and whispers, you're a bad father, you know that, right? Shame crawls into bed with us at 3 a.m. and pokes us in the back and slithers, you know you're a bad friend, right? Shame tells us that we are too bad, too mean, too sensitive, too needy, too anxious, too much, and not enough. Shame keeps a ledger of everything terrible we're done and tells us that's who we are. It is in the midst of shame that we offer our confession before God and in the presence of one another. We tell the truth about ourselves and discover that by grace, while we have done things that are wrong, we ourselves are not wrong. We are in fact deeply loved. So holding on to the grace of God, let us confess our sins together using the prayer of confession. God of all sinners and saints, we would be saint-like, holy, good, patient, loving, but we end up acting more like sinners, full of failures of morality, selfish and unkind. You see us simply as human, as beloved and flawed, and trying and failing and succeeding. In all of this, forgive the wrong that we have done and bless the good we accomplish through your grace. Keep on loving us, helping us, and molding us more and more into the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As far as east is from west, so great is God's love for us. From everlasting to everlasting, God's grace and mercy are offered to all. Friends, hear and believe the good news of the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Amen. be seated. Let us pray. Gracious God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is our hope in the midst of shame and sorrow. Give us the grace this day to receive your truth in faith and in love. Strengthen us to follow on the path you have set before us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Good morning. This Sunday, we are closing out our sermon series, Is It Just Me?, with the light and easy topic of shame. So we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 1, select verses between verse 1 and 18. 
Listen now for a word from the Lord. There was a certain man whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now Elkanah used to go up year by year from his town to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife and sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And Hannah's rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So Hannah would weep and not eat. After the family had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And Hannah was deeply distressed and praying to God, weeping bitterly. And she made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me. Not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall neither drink wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall cut his head. And as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. For Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring myself out before the Lord. So do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. And then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grants you the petitions you have made. And Hannah said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then Hannah went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. So when I was 15 years old, I took a good long walk with shame. It was shortly after I received my learner's permit, but before I had my driver's license. And in Kansas, there's this period of time where you can drive to school and to work and to church by yourself before you get your driver's license. So it was in that season. My brother and I were on our way to youth group on a Sunday night, and I realized that I needed to get gas. Now, out of a list of things that parents get nervous about when it comes to their kids driving, getting gas is not super high on the list. We get nervous about highway driving, driving in the rain, rush hour traffic. I don't even have kids, and I get nervous about that for our youth. However, you don't hear parents say very often, 
Gosh, I'm just so nervous. She's going to have to get gas today. I mean, how hard can it be? You pull up to the pump, you open the little door, you fill your tank up, and you keep moving. Easy, right? Well, you would think so. Unfortunately, the first time I got gas, it did not go quite as smoothly. I remember I was on the phone with a friend and I was running late to youth group. I remember my brother stayed in the car because it was cold and I remember looking at the four handles on the gas pump and thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure my mom uses the green one. I'll use that. Yeah, so some of you have had your coffee today and you know what's coming. So I pinch the phone to my shoulder and I grab the far left handle and I turn around and I try to fill up the tank. Now the first red flag should have been that the pump handle did not fit in my car. So I looked around to see if there were any adults that I could glean wisdom from. And seeing none, I decided to make the genius executive decision to just hold very still and continue filling up my car. So I got back in the car, and I turned it on, and I continued the drive to church, and within a block, the steering wheel started shaking. And then the hood was smoking. And then, just about as quickly, I realized that I no longer had control over the brake or the acceleration. We're in Kansas City. There are stoplights like every 10 feet, so my gold minivan goes catapulting through a red light, horn blaring, and thanks be to God for the Kansas City Hills, we eventually slowed down and coasted into a parking lot. Heart beating fast, I call my dad and I say, Dad, the minivan broke and it was awful, but don't worry, I was very brave. My father is on the other line and he's already interjecting, asking questions. What do you mean the minivan broke? Where are you? What happened? Is your brother with you? Are you okay? And I answer all the questions again, reiterating how heroic I was. And then my dad figures it out. And he says, Sarah, did you just get gas? And there's a sinking feeling in my stomach and I say, Maybe. <laughs> and he said, Sarah, you put diesel in your car. My younger brother heard it on the speakerphone and says, good job, genius. You just paid premium to destroy your car. And cue the shame. So my brother and I ended up walking to church that night. We got there late, and by the time we had arrived, I made him swear up and down the boulevard that he would not tell anyone what I had done, because that's how shame works. Shame is the great disconnector. Shame is that voice that whispers in your head, do not say this out loud. If you speak it, you might end up alone. Shame is what writer and researcher Brene Brown describes as the master emotion. It is defined as the intensely painful feeling or experience 
of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And there are thousands of things that can trigger us to throw in the rink with shame. For men, those triggers often involve failure or a fear of displaying emotion, a fear of appearing weak. For women, shame can often be associated with being rejected or feeling as if we are not enough. Now, these are not universal triggers, but what is universal is that we all feel shame. If you feel empathy, research shows you feel shame too. And it's important to note that shame is different from guilt or embarrassment. Shame is wrapped up in our identity, whereas guilt is wrapped up in behavior. So guilt is, you lied. Shame is, you are a liar. Guilt is, oops, you put diesel in your car. Shame is, you're not smart and you're a terrible driver. Shame is a direct blow to our identity, telling us that we aren't worthy of love or belonging, which is what makes it the very thing that drives disconnection. For when we feel ashamed, we're more likely than ever to draw into ourselves, to build up walls, and to avoid addressing the thing causing us pain. That's why there are stories of people losing their jobs and not telling their partners for weeks. And that's why sometimes we opt not to ask for help even if we need it. And that's why I made my brother swear to keep a secret. Shame is the great disconnector. We see this truth in our text for today, the way shame drives separation. Our text today focuses on a woman named Hannah who is certainly familiar with shame. For the first thing we learn about Hannah is that she is married to a man named Elkanah, and she has been unable to have children. Now, it doesn't take a genius to assume that Hannah's inability to have children has been painful for her. Women of every time and space have been taught that our bodies are designed for childbearing. And when that is not an option or when that is not a desire, it's nearly impossible to not feel shame or to not experience shame from others. So we have a woman. Her name is Hannah. She lives in a world where it's her one job to have a child and she is unable to do so. And every year, Hannah's family goes to the temple to offer sacrifices to God. And every year, Hannah leaves her family's side to go and pray by herself. And this prayer is silent. The text actually lifts this detail up twice. First, it says Hannah was praying silently. And then, as if we Presbyterians aren't familiar with silent prayer, it says it again. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. This detail is worth noting because people in that day and age were extremely suspicious of silent prayer. The thought was, if you wanted God to hear your prayers, then you better speak them out loud. And if you were praying to yourself, then the concern was that there might be something unholy 
about your prayers that you are trying to hide. So there was great suspicion. And despite this, Hannah prays silently. And I can only assume that that comes out of a desire to keep her shame to herself. It sounds to me like that small voice that says, you better not speak this out loud. If you do, you might be alone. So Hannah is alone in the temple, away from her family in a city that is unfamiliar. She is praying to herself, but instead of lifting up prayers and in a community that could pray alongside, with, and for her, she does so silently. And all of these variables point to the fact that shame drives disconnection. For there's no family with her. She's not sharing her grief with her husband. She's not praying in community. She's alone. That is until Eli shows up. So Eli is the priest in the temple while Hannah is praying, and Eli sees Hannah praying silently to herself, and in the least pastoral response recorded in all of history, Eli walks up to her and asks her if she's drunk. Smooth, right? Good job, Eli. However, fortunately for Eli, Hannah offers him a chance to redeem himself. Hannah explains her situation. She says, I am a woman in deep trouble. I have been pouring out my soul to the Lord. I have been speaking with great anxiety all this time. Hannah paints a picture of her shame. She doesn't go into detail, but she doesn't hold back either. And fortunately, Eli gets it right this time. Fortunately, Eli seems to recognize the shame she's carrying. He didn't see it at first, but now he sees it and he responds with grace. And he says, go in peace. And may God grant you your request. This is a powerful moment to me because it's a moment of connection and honesty in a sea of disconnection and shame for Hannah. And what makes it even more powerful to me is the fact that Eli didn't get it right the first time, but he tried again. And the fact that the next thing we hear about Hannah is that she is returning home to her family, that they eat a meal together, and that she's not recorded crying anymore. Now, I cannot assume that this one back-and-forth conversation with a priest in the temple changed Hannah for all time, but I do wonder if this moment of connection served as a moment of refuge in the midst of a storm. And I do wonder if this is our job as people of faith, to resist the temptation to disconnect in the face of shame and to offer opportunities and grace for connection to those around us. So how do we do that? I don't have easy answers, but I do have one idea of what not to do. One of the greatest blessings about being in seminary is it tends to be one of the most diverse communities you can be a part of. It's racially diverse, ethnically diverse, denominationally diverse, people of all different ages and stages of life. It's beautiful. 
And I remember my very first semester in seminary, I was in a small seminar class that sat with our chairs in a circle, the teacher at the front. I don't remember the details of that day, but I remember we had been having an engaging discussion on race. And my professor brought up the Sankofa. A Sankofa is a beautiful Ghanaian symbol of a bird looking backwards over its shoulder. It is commonly used in African cultures to express the value of reaching back to knowledge gained in the past and bringing it into the present in order to make positive progress. Now at this point in my seminary journey, I had heard the Sankofa a few times. I was familiar with it. However, when my teacher turned and looked directly at me and said, Sarah, what is the significance of the Sankofa? I froze. You see, I had heard dozens of times before that it was unhelpful for white people to speak on behalf of African-American people in our nation because when we do, we rob the narrative. As a result, one of my main learnings as a person with white privilege that it has been a whole lot more important that I listen more than I speak. So when my professor turned to me to ask what the Sankofa symbolized, I panicked. And I thought, surely this must be one of those moments, one of those moments where it's my job to listen more than to speak. And so in an instinct, I turned and looked at the African-American student sitting to my right. And without hesitation, my classmate said back, I cannot believe you just looked at me because I'm black. I felt as if I had been punched in the gut. And she was right. That is what had happened. My intention and hope was to pass the mic, to do more listening than speaking, to be aware that I have no historical roots to Ghana and that there are people in this space that love and cherish this symbol. However, as positive as my intention had been, my action had made my classmate who I deeply respected, feel tokenized. And in front of the whole class, I had been called on the carpet for my mistake. So I immediately apologized and tried to answer the question, but it was too late. My throat was tight. I was blinking back tears. You know that feeling, it's shame. The damage had been done, and it left such an impact on me that I did not voluntarily raise my hand to speak about a matter related to race in class until the semester I graduated. That didn't mean that I didn't care. That didn't mean that I wasn't listening. It didn't mean that I wasn't invested. I certainly was. But shame is the great disconnector. And I was so afraid of saying the wrong thing that I thought it would be better if I remove myself from the conversation altogether. I tell you this story. It's not a story I'm proud of. But I tell you this story because shame tells us to build up walls. Shame will tell us to go through the storm alone to pray silently instead of with community, to swear up and down the boulevard that you won't tell a soul. 
Shame will tell us to avoid hard conversations altogether, choosing to disconnect and be safe rather than connect and deal with the possibility of saying the wrong thing and being ashamed. However, what I have learned is that our job as people of faith is to choose connection. I think our job as people of faith is to resist the temptation to disconnect in the face of shame and to do our best to offer empathy and grace and opportunities for connection to those around us. And that will be hard. And it will require grace. And it will require some of Hannah's strength, but I think that is our job. For we cannot expect to grow in our interpersonal relationships unless we're willing to be honest about the things we carry shame around, whether that's job performance, infertility, mental health, addiction. And we certainly cannot be the church in the world unless we're willing to deal with shame. Because under every conversation about race is a conversation about privilege, and we can't talk about privilege without talking about shame. And under every conversation about the environment is a conversation around complacency, and we can't talk about complacency without talking about shame. And under every conversation about our reputation as a church is a conversation about our historical choice to exclude And we can't admit that without a conversation around shame. We, as people of faith, are called to wrestle with shame because there is no more room in this world for disconnection. We have to claim it and talk about it, personally and as an institution. I think if we want to be the church in the world, we have to start here. So that night, I filled up my car with diesel. My brother and I had to catch a ride home with friends. We left that atrocious gold minivan in the parking lot. And when I got home, I remember my dad was in his office reading, and I kicked off my shoes by the back door and quietly walked up the stairs and eventually went and sat on the ottoman in his office And before he could even say a word, I just started crying. I expected a reprimand. I expected a go to your room and think about what you've done, that disconnected shame. But instead, what I got was fierce love. My dad said to me, Sarah, at the end of the day, all that matters to me when it comes to your car is that you are safe. A car is just a thing. It will be fine. And Google told me that you can siphon diesel out. (laughs) What matters to me is that you are okay because I love you. And for the first time that night, I lifted my head and was able to have eye contact with the man that raised me. Friends, shame is the driving force that prevents us from relating fully to one another. And it is the driving force that prevents us from addressing so many of the world's most urgent needs. However, when shame is met with empathy, with a, it's going to be okay, I love you, 
or with a go in peace, and may it be so, then shame does not have ground to stand on. So if we want to be God's church in the world, if we want to be people with authentic and meaningful relationships, and if we want to be a church that is challenging some of the world's most pressing issues, then may we take a lesson from Hannah and Eli. Like Hannah, may we be brave enough to speak our truth. And like Eli, may we learn to offer grace and connection even if we get it wrong the first time. It will not be easy. It will be messy. But I am confident that the Holy Spirit will keep guiding us home. Friends, pray with me. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. On the occasion of the sacrament of baptism, the early church gathered together and found community and connection by saying together the words of the Apostles' Creed. We will do so as a community of faith this morning, so let us rise in body and spirit and say the affirmation of faith printed in our order of service. Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Friends, as we turn our attention to prayer, I want to call to your mind the joys and concerns that you will find printed on the back of your bulletin and commit, commend those prayers uh, to your personal prayer life in the coming week as you uh, remember them. I also want to note a couple of joys in our community. We are grateful to say that our uh, Participants in the racial ethnic pilgrimage uh, have returned safely and they have experienced a, a wonderful and meaningful time. You can read some about that in the, on the blog posts that they have provided and we look forward to learning through their eyes and through their experiences. We also celebrate the birth of James Luke to Rachel and Hunter Kennedy. We celebrate with the Kennedy family on this latest addition to their family and pray God's blessings upon them in this new chapter of their life together. Also, please remember to sign the care letters. Those are letters that are outside the north transept doors to my right. You will find those letters under the windows. Uh, those are addressed to individuals and families who've experienced something in their life, either a joy or a concern, and your signatures serve as a form of prayer. So please uh, take the opportunity to participate in that. Uh, as you will. Friends, let us unite our hearts and minds together in prayer as we pray together. 
Out of our ordinary, everyday lives, holy God, you have gathered us here to this time of worship and this time of praise. We join our hearts with those who have gone before us to praise you and to give thanks for your goodness and mercy, to immerse ourselves in your grace and in your love. There are times, Lord, that we find it difficult to sense you in our midst. It's times when we reflect on our world and the state that it is in. We think of areas across this globe that are marked more by war and by terrorism. And we think of people who are affected, families and children, and those who are affected directly by the, the upheaval of life in war-torn areas. Our world is broken, Lord, and we need your grace and your mercy. More close to home, we think of our nation and we pray for the politics of our nation and the absence of civil discourse. And we ask your blessings would be upon all who stand to serve. And we ask that you would give each one of us wisdom and grace to consider such service and to consider those that are willing to stand for this service. So we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, open our minds to your presence with us. Help us to see you in the face of one another, even those with whom we disagree, or perhaps most especially. Take the chaos of the world that has found its way into our hearts, that we might experience order and form and new creation. Take the failures and defeats the guilt and the shame that bind our spirits, that create disconnection in our lives, disconnection from others and from the world around us, and that create feelings of loneliness, break down the walls that shame builds in our lives, and stop the tape that plays in our mind that tells us to try and go through it alone. Help us, Lord, that we can be set free to live the fullness of life that you desire for us. Take our longings for your goodness to shape our lives, to shape this community and the hurting world in which we live, and infuse us with your courage and your hope and your love. Give us your grace that peace might enter our lives anew. And then awaken us to your Holy Spirit, who is making all things new, even us. We ask in Jesus' name, who sends us out to speak love and mercy and grace to those who are waiting and longing and hoping for a sign that they are not alone, that you are a God of love, that you are a Savior who knows their name that the Holy Spirit is leading them home. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord, who taught us to pray in this way, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
through the giving of our tithes and offerings provides us the opportunity to reach out to our neighbors in need whose circumstances might allow them to feel a sense of shame and hopelessness and to meet those needs in tangible ways. And so I invite the ushers to come forward to collect this morning's tithes and offering.
Let us pray. Lord, you have given us people who love us and whom we love. In this, we find comfort. You have placed strangers in our lives, and in this, we can find challenge and an openness to your call. Open our eyes to see your face in every person that we meet. Open our hearts to count each of your children as our siblings. And open our arms to welcome them in. Open our gifts so that we may show them that your love and compassion has no bounds. Through this, may we find that you have made your home in us and us a part of your family. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. It is my pleasure to welcome the Lamont family forward as they are here at the font as they present their daughter for the sacrament of baptism. Through this sacrament, God claims us and seals us as God's own forever. For we believe that Christ loves us first. It is God who first reaches out to us to claim us and to seal us as Christ's own. And so on this occasion, each time that we come to this font, you are invited to remember your own baptism. That is the claim that God has placed and sealed on your own heart and life. On behalf of the session, I present Caroline Murkison Lamont to be baptized. Nicolette and Miles, first of all, you all are troopers. This has been a long service, so it's good to see your smiling faces. I ask you these questions. Do you desire your child to be baptized, do you? Leaning on the gracious mercy of God, do you trust that goodness is stronger than evil, that light is stronger than darkness, that love is stronger than hate, that life is stronger than death, and that Christ Jesus is strongest of all, do you? Empowered by the Holy Spirit, will you take the risk of faith every day, seeking to embody the expansive love of Jesus Christ in all you say and do, do you? Do you promise to tell your child the stories of the Christian faith, to pray for her, and to remember for yourself and for your child that they belong first and always to the love of God, which we know through Jesus Christ our Lord, do you? Do we, as the members of the Church of Jesus Christ, promise to guide and nurture Caroline with love and prayer through teaching and service, encouraging her to know and follow our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? If so, please say, we do. Friends, let us pray. This water is ordinary, O Lord, but in this water you make extraordinary promises to Caroline. In this water, you promise to claim her as your own. In this water, you promise to wrap her in your love. In this water, you seal her with a new identity, child of the covenant. Oh God, it's always been this way with you and water. You moved over the water at creation to bring forth life. Out of the waters of the flood, you gave righteousness a new start. Through the waters of the Red Sea, you gave your people freedom. In the waters of the Jordan, Jesus was baptized and anointed with your spirit. Send your spirit again over this water, we pray. Surround Caroline with your grace, and as she receives a visible sign of it, renew us all with the gift of new beginnings and deep belongings, so that this young one may go from here in joy as your beloved family. We pray in Christ's holy name. 
Amen. Is she going to stay with Dad, or is she going to come with me? Caroline, will you come see me? Yeah. Come on. Come on. Oh. By what name shall your child be baptized? Caroline Murkison. Caroline Murkison, I baptize you in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Caroline, you are a child of the covenant. We love you and your family here at Preston Hollow Presbyterian love you too. And we pray God's richest blessings upon you this and every day. All right, go to Dad. <laughs> Say thank you. Caroline Murkison Lamont is now received into the Holy Catholic Church. Through baptism, God has made her a member of the household of faith to share with us in the priesthood of Christ. Friends, it is now time to introduce Caroline Murkison to you as the newest child of the covenant of this part of Christ's body. I invite you to remain seated as we sing together. Will you join me? The Lamont family is being given this candle as a remembrance of this day, this important day in Caroline's life, and they're invited to light it each year to remember who they are and whose they are. Friends, please now let it stand as we sing our closing hymn.
family of faith, if we want to be God's church in the world, and if we want to have authentic relationships, then we've got to deal with shame. So may God grant us the bravery of Hannah to tell our story when the time arises, and the wisdom of Eli to see shame in another person when it's being spoken. And may God move between us to empower us to be people of connection. And as you go, may you love as if love is not a scarcity. May you hope like there is a better tomorrow. May you live like we belong to one another, because we do. And may you trust that nothing can separate you from God's love. So in the name of the lover, the beloved, and love itself, Go now in peace. Thank you.